Why Not Memphis Part 1. Once again, we're so glad that you're here tonight. Now, as we jump into it, when I was a junior at the University of Memphis, if I can be honest with you, I hated Christianity. If I can be real honest with you, when I was a junior at the University of Memphis, 21 years old, I hated church. I hated anything to do with church. I didn't want to go to church. If I'll be honest with you, if I saw a Christian coming up to me on campus, I would have faked a phone call, right? (laughs) Hello? You know, turn the other way. I was that guy. I hated it. I didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And the last job I ever thought that I would be doing would be a pastor. In fact, people in my past who knew me when I was lost hear that I'm a pastor now, and to be honest with you, you can ask my wife, they laugh about it because <laughs> they simply can't believe it. And the reason that I hated it is because I was convinced by the world, by peers, that this whole thing was just a religion. I was convinced by the world that this is just a rule book and nothing more. I was convinced that church was just a gathering once a week, but then it never impacted the rest of your life. That's what I was convinced for for a long time. And then I had a radical conversion where I realized that's not true. In fact, what happened is I started reading the Bible for the first time. You know, some of you in here, and I'm going to be honest with you tonight, I don't want to step on your toes, but I will because I'm preaching the word. Some of you in here are so against this, you don't ever read it, and you don't ever spend time in it. And the reason is not because you believe it's false, it's because you've never actually given this a chance in your life. Let's be real. You never have. There's people in here who have never tried to really open up the word. If you have, you did one of these numbers where you just kind of flip and point, and that's your word for the day. (laughs) Careful. (laughs) But have you ever actually given this thing a chance? Because what I realized is at 21 when I started reading this, that this is not just a rule book. I I realized that this is the divine word of God. Amen? I realized that my creator has written to me. And if my creator, who is above the heavens and the earth, has written to me, why would I not want to read it every single day? And so I started reading it for myself, not what other people in the fraternity or the sorority said, not my fellow athletes said, not my peers in my classrooms. I started reading it for me. And for some of you, your biggest takeaway tonight is you need to start reading this for you, (laughs) for you. I got turned on to Jesus. I fell in love with Jesus Christ. I had this radical conversion. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've studied the Bible over the last five years, and when you begin to look at Scripture... And then you look at Christian culture today, you realize something. You realize that a lot of us as Christians have barely scratched the surface when it comes to following Jesus. I look at books like Nehemiah. I look at books like Acts. I look at books like Exodus, when God brings the Israelites out of slavery. And I say, man, there's got to be something more than what I'm experiencing myself. And a big reason why is because we allow the world to give us a very small view of God. In fact, there's believers in this room tonight who have a small view of God. There's non-believers in the room tonight who have a false view of God. You don't really believe God's that big. I want to turn your attention to Isaiah 40, verse 28. It'll be on the screen for you. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. Many of you started your studies today. You're going to realize very quickly there's a limit to your understanding. (laughs) All right. I was talking to a chemistry major today, and he was like, man, it's tough out here. I ain't going to lie to you. (laughs) But you don't realize real quick. What's amazing about the Lord is he's all-knowing. There's no limit to his understanding. Isn't that amazing? That's the Lord. And then I'll turn your attention to Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4, which says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, which is, watch this, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is a human being that you remember him? Isn't that incredible? Basically, the psalmist says, 
God, you are so big that you put the stars and the moon and the sun into their place, so why would you ever care about my life when I'm so small? Isn't that amazing? See, that's a big view of God, but if we're honest, we don't view God that way. We view God as Santa Claus. (laughs) We view God as a genie in a bottle. Go around your college campus tomorrow. All of you got classes tomorrow, which is tough. You got them in person, too. That's a grind, ain't it? It's different than Zoom. It's good. I'm not not down in it, but it's different. But go ask people tomorrow who they say God is. You realize really quickly that a lot of them think it's the big man upstairs. (laughs) You hear it on Family Guy. You see it made fun of all the time in every single TikTok all over Instagram. You see God and his nature made fun of. You see the name of Jesus. The most that you hear the name of Jesus is taken in vain. Isn't that a shame? But people have a small view of God, and the reason why is they have allowed the world to give them that view because they've never actually discovered who he is for themselves. That was a change that happened in my life. I realized who he was, and I realized how big he was, and I realized that there's a whole lot more to this Christian life. But if I can tell you tonight, as we look at Nehemiah, as we look at a revival beginning in your heart and in the heart of the city of Memphis, I want to tell you something. In your Christian walk, whether you have come to the point where you're ready to have a relationship with Jesus or whether you're not at that point yet, I want you to please hear me. God has been doing a work in your life to bring you to the point where you are ready to repent of your sins and accept him as your Savior for a very long time. Because this thing... This Christian life, this religion that you've heard about, this book, I want to tell you, is far more real than you think it is. There are brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now who are willing to die over that book right there, and you and I have a copy on every bookshelf, and we never read it. Isn't that a shame? So I want to ask you a question. What would it look like if God became real in the city of Memphis and if he became real in your heart and in your life? What happens when the Bible goes from the book that you have on the shelf that you never read to the book that radically changes your life? What happens? What happens is revival breaks out. This breaks out, where college students from all across the city are coming to worship and to preach and to hear the name of Jesus preached boldly. That's what will happen. And so I want to give you my sermon in a sentence, and then we're going to jump into Nehemiah. If I could give it to you in one sentence, here it is. God can begin a revival in your heart and in the city of Memphis. The question is, How desperately do you want him to? How desperately do you want God to begin a work in your heart and in your mind? Now for this series of 7%, as we look at Nehemiah, let me tell you about God's people. Now we have an array of people in the room. We have people in the room who know God's word very well. We have people in the room who this is their first sermon they've ever heard in person. I want to tell you something. God's people, the nation of Israel, and this is where a lot of people... Zone out, but you need this. Hear me. Lock in with me. God and his people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they set up a covenant, and God takes the covenant on himself, and he asks his people, the nation of Israel, he he tells them, hey, I'm going to lead you out of slavery in Egypt. For those of us in the room who aren't familiar with the Bible, we know about Moses. He says, I'm going to send Moses, and Moses is going to bring my people out of slavery, out from the land of Egypt, and I'm going to lead you to the promised land. You ever heard of the promised land before? God says, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And here's what God asked of his nation, Israel. He said, what you are to do, watch this, because we messed it up. He says, you are to obey my commands. 
You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're to obey. You're to say yes. When God says do something, you're going to do it because you're my people. And what you see happen all throughout the Old Testament is what you see happen in today's world. The nation of Israel chooses to disobey. The nation of Israel chooses to go against God's word. God says, don't make foreign idols to worship and bow down to. I am your God. I am the only God. And yet, the nation of Israel makes golden calves. They bow down to other idols. They worship stiff-necked idols. They constantly go against God's word. Now, in our world today, in the New Testament era, when we sin as believers, there is a break in our fellowship with God. You are not taken out of God's hand. You do not lose your salvation when you sin. But when you as a believer sin, when you choose to go against God's word, there's a break in your fellowship. All of a sudden, there's shame and there's guilt that exists in your life. Sin multiplies. Prayer becomes harder. Reading God's word becomes harder. Have you ever been there before? It breaks your fellowship with God. And what it is, is it's Satan attacking your walk with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. When you come to a point in your life when you're tired of watching pornography every single day, that's right, we talk about the hard stuff in here. We talk about it. When you're tired of living in sex before marriage because you know that sex is designed for marriage, it's designed for a special time and a special place and a commitment that God has ordained, when you choose to say, hey, I'm done living in jealousy. I'm done living in ungodly comparison. I'm done with these things, and I repent. I give God my sins. I'm done living this way. When you choose to do that, God brings restoration, does he not? I want you to hear me. Every time you repent, God restores you. Every time you repent, God restores you, if your heart means it. If your heart means it. God does not delight in burnt offerings, meaning God does not delight when you go through the motions of a, sacri- of a religious routine. That's not what God is looking for, for you to come here. And it's great if you want to pray at the altar, but it doesn't matter if you pray at the altar or at home. God is looking for your heart. And when you repent, you're restored. And that's what it was like for Israel. When Israel would repent of their sins, God would restore them. But time and time again, Israel chose to sin. And what happens is because of their sin, they're driven into slavery. They're driven into exile. They get, they get taken into captivity. Because of their sin. And when they're taken into captivity, years go by. Jerusalem is broken down. The walls are broken down. The city is destroyed. And Nehemiah, who his people are the Israelites, hears a report that his people are in shame. They're in disgrace. And God is not getting the glory that he's due. Now, what I'm going to tell you tonight is when you look at Jerusalem at that time, it's very similar to what you see in the city of Memphis. It's different. But it's very similar because right here in the city, there's brokenness, there's poverty, and God is not being glorified in the sin that exists all around us and in our lives. So let's look at what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1. Right here, starting in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. I want to make sure that you have time to get there. Nehemiah chapter 1. Now, the words of Nehemiah, during the month of Shelev in the 20th century, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. Now, look at this. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Now, remember what we just said. His people had gone into slavery. They're coming back out. They're returning to Jerusalem. They're coming out of slavery. They're coming out of that brokenness and that hardship, and they're returning to a city that's broken down. So Nehemiah, what he does is he questions. He asks. 
about the situation there. And look at this in verse 3. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. If you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline disgrace. We're going to come back to that. I hear pins clicking all around the room. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And disgrace. Jerusalem's walls have been broken down and its gates have been burned. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. When's the last time you wept? I'm not talking about just crying because your boyfriend dumped you or your girlfriend dumped you. I'm not talking about crying and whining over the fact that somebody hasn't replied to your Snapchat yet or they left you on red. I'm not talking about you're hungry or you're hangry. Cry. My wife's been there. I'm going to get in trouble for that later. (laughs) Go see me getting whooped or something. I'll be cleaning the house. Nehemiah weeps. And then it says, I love this. Look at this. He says, I mourn for a number of days. In our culture today, how quickly do we just move from one thing to the next? How quickly? Some of you, you came to the view tonight, and you're like, all right, well, this was great. I'm going to move on to the very next thing. I beg of you, don't. I beg of you to plug in here in this community. But he says, I mourned for a number of days, fasting, which means he gave up stuff of this earth in order to gain that of heaven, gave up food to replace it with prayer. And then it says right here, praying before the God of the heavens. We're going to come back to his prayer in a moment. Now, the first thing I want to give you is number one. I have three questions for you tonight. Number one is, are you willing to care? Number one, are you willing to care? Now, as you're writing that down, Nehemiah is in Susa, Persia, which is 981 miles away from Jerusalem, if you want to know specifics, roughly. 981 miles away from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah has a great job, Bree. He has a great career. He is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. That's a great position to be in. He's working in the government. Nehemiah is in a great place, a great city with a whole lot of trade. He has a good career going. He's got trust from the king. And even though things are going good for him, even though he has a prominent role in the government, a lot of us are in school trying to get us a prominent role, a prominent job, a prominent career. We want to be positioned, right, next to somebody who has some power like King Artaxerxes would. We want to be positioned by somebody. We want to set ourselves up to succeed. Even though he has all this, even though he's 981 miles away, even though he's cupbearer to the king, right hand, he's still asking about Jerusalem. Now, look with me at verse 1 because I want to focus on the report that he gets. Nehemiah gets a report about Jerusalem, and the first thing you have to realize is that he cares enough to ask. What I love about Nehemiah is that he is not too selfish or wrapped up in his own life to ask about the needs of others. He's not. He is asking about a city that is 981 miles away. And what he finds out when he asks about these people who have just come out of slavery, that they are disgraced and they are in shame. Now, the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed. It's rubble. There is conflict. There is pain. And I want you to understand, at this time, for the Israelites who are returning, There were foreigners who don't believe the true God, don't believe in Yahweh, don't believe the God of the Israelites. And what they were doing is they would come to Nehemiah's people and they would pressure and they would laugh and they would mock his people. But most of all, you can deal with somebody mocking you, but most of all, what hurts so much is that they would come and they would mock the true God. 
And that should stir something in you. See, when they saw the walls broken down, they would come to the people who had just come out of exile and, said, and say this, where's your God now? With all the rubble around them, with all the division and the brokenness and the hurt, they'd come and they'd say, is your God asleep? Is he not real? <laughs> they would come to him and they would say, oh, your God must be busy doing something else that he can't come and help you rebuild your city. Where is he now? And college students, I want to tell you, when you really choose to stand up for your faith in this city, there will be people who come to you when you're struggling and they will ask, where's your God now? There are some people, when you get into a pit, when you get into a hard time, when you suffer for your faith, there will be people who come to you and say, oh, does your God not love you now? But you know James 1 as well as I do. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That God would allow us to suffer and go through trials in our Christian faith because God knows that it is sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus Christ. But when you do it, I'm going to tell you now, when you choose to stand up for Jesus and your fraternity or your sorority, when you go back to your workplace and you go back to working at Toys R Us, which ain't even in business, no more, rest in peace. <laughs> Rip. When you head back to your workplace, when you head back to your, your football team and your basketball team, your rugby team, your lacrosse team, you pick the sport, it doesn't matter. There's lostness there. When you head back there and claim to live for Jesus, you better be ready for that persecution because it's going to come. But let me tell you something. Jesus is worth it. Amen? He's always worth it. He's always worth it. And they come to him. They say, where's your God now? See, God in Jerusalem is not getting the glory he's deserved. He's being mocked. He's being laughed at. And his people are struggling. Nehemiah gets this report. Please don't miss this. We haven't even left verse 3 yet. <laughs> this is causing Nehemiah's people, and he knows it, is causing them to struggle with who they are. Their identity is at risk. See, when there is a, an attack on your faith, there is also an attack on your identity. There is an attack on who you are, Maddie. There is an attack on who God has made you to be. Now, Nehemiah hears this report, and please don't miss this. Nehemiah's heart is broken. You can feel it reading God's word, can't you? Can you feel it when it says, I sat down and wept, mourned for a number of days, fast and praying, I couldn't shake it? Nehemiah's broken. Do you know that Jesus wept too over Jerusalem? In fact, in Luke 19, verse 41 to 44, this will be on the screen. It says, as he approached and saw the city, that being Jerusalem, he wept for it. This is Jesus. This is the sinless Savior, the Messiah. He's weeping over Jerusalem. Do you think that you and I should weep from time to time over spiritual things? He weeps for the city saying, here's verse 42, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And then Jesus says, because they have rejected God, here's what will happen. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst because, look at this, you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Have you realized quite yet that God has visited and is making a move for you tonight? That God has been working for you for a long time that he loves you, 
that you are so loved by the one who created you. Have you come to a point to realize that yet? Jesus and Nehemiah wept over people. I want to ask you a question tonight. How hard have our hearts gotten? Do you think that we are numb to the brokenness around us? Do you think that we are detached from the emotional suffering and the physical suffering around us? Because college students, I want to be very real with you tonight. I want to be very cut and dry with you. Nehemiah is 981 miles away, and this is a newsflash. I don't know if you know this or not. This might be the biggest thing you take away from tonight. They did not have social media. <laughs> Somebody was like, dang, for real? <laughs> no, they didn't. As far as we know, I mean, it'd be kind of weird to see Jesus walking around with an iPhone. They didn't have social media. They didn't have TVs. They didn't have radios. This is thousands of years ago. I want to make a point to you. Nehemiah, all he has to go off of is what he has heard. Kate, humor me for a minute. He hears a report of brokenness and people not worshiping God and giving God glory, and he weeps and fasts and mourns for days. The reason why I asked you how hard are our hearts today is because we don't just hear it, we see it. Everywhere we go, we see what Nehemiah heard about. Every time you load up social media, you see sin. You see brokenness. You see divorce. You see loneliness. Every single time you make that drive to the Nike clearance store to get you some fresh clothes, you drive past poverty. You drive past brokenness and hurt families. Every single time you and I leave and drive down to go to University of Memphis campus, we pull up on the Highland exit, and there's a homeless man sitting right there. We see it everywhere around us, not to mention we go back to our workplaces, and we see people cursing and smoking marijuana and getting drunk every single weekend. Not to mention we go back to our families and see them going through divorces and struggling with who they are. We load up social media and see it and partake in sin. I want to make a point to you. We don't just hear it. We see it every single place that we go in this city and in our lives, and we rarely ever weep over it. We rarely ever weep. He's 981 miles away. He hears a report of brokenness, and he fasts for days. You and me will see brokenness before we leave Appling, and we, most of us could care less. So are you willing to care? Am I willing to care? In 2021, do we care about Afghanistan at all? And I'm not making a political stance. I'm talking about the believers that are suffering. Hear me now. Do we care about our neighbors who have no idea that Jesus Christ died for them too? Do we care? Do we care at all that every single time we step foot on University of Memphis campus, we are surrounded by people who are not reading their Bible every day, who are not praying every day, who don't know their value, and they're on their way. Here it is to hell. Do we care? Man, some of you might not be back next week. I hate that. Please come back. But do we care that people are dying and going to hell? Most of all, can I ask you the most important question tonight? Do you care at all about your own soul? Because for some of you, the 7% is real great and it's real cute, but some of you are here tonight, you don't need to go reach anybody because God's trying to reach you. <laughs> Amen. 
Let me be honest and let me be clear. You have been prayed for by a lot of people for a long time, the fact that you're here tonight. I believe that God brought you here tonight. I don't know who I'm speaking to, but you do. I believe God brought you here tonight because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. If you die tomorrow, you're just like me when I was 21. You'd have no idea where you would really go. You don't know where you would spend eternity. You don't know if this is all real. You think it's a religion, but you know that God has been working on you for a long, long time. And let me tell you something. We've been praying for you for a long time. Not that you would join the view or join Bellevue. What does that matter? That you would come to know Jesus and then take the gospel back to your family. So are you willing to care about your own soul before you care about the city of Memphis? Because if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you do not care where you spend eternity. When I was 21, I was broken because I realized if I died tomorrow, I had a whole lot of religion on my side, but I didn't have Jesus on my side. And if you die and have a lot of religion, but you don't have Jesus, I'm sorry to tell you, you don't go to heaven. But if you die and you have nothing else, nothing, if you are a thief who gets crucified next to a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi and you look over at him and say, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, being Jesus, tells you, truly today you will be with me in paradise. That is all you need. All you need. Isn't that amazing? But you don't hear that these days. What you hear is you got to climb the ladder. You got to be religious. You got to put yourself all together before you come to God. I got to tell you, I found salvation face down, crying at a public park the day after Christmas. Yes, it was freezing cold. (laughs) That's where I found my salvation. What's cute about that? What's put together about that? What's politically correct about that? It's broken. Are you willing to care about your own soul enough to give your life to Jesus Christ so that you can walk with him every day? And then believers, are you willing to care about somebody other than you? Are you willing to love your neighbor? Am I willing to love my neighbor? Or is it all about us, just the world revolving around us 24-7? You know, I coached basketball at Barla High School for five years. I coached basketball five years, coached for three years at Barla High School. And I was a young coach. I was in college. And these kids, they were high school kids, they would try to test me all the time. I mean, these little jokers would push me. (laughs) They would try to intimidate me. They're like, oh, he's young. I can push him around, man. And I was like, you know, bucking up. I was like, I'm not going to back down. And uh, to try to show him, I tucked my shirts in, (laughs) which didn't help (laughs) at all. (laughs) And I tried to deepen my voice, like, get on the line, you know. (laughs) It didn't work. And i never forget I didn't know the Lord. I was lost. I didn't know Jesus. And one of the kids that I was coaching, Dakota knows him. We were in a car coming back from a training session. And I told my kids, the, the players I coached, I said, hey, man, I don't want y'all cursing. Even though I cursed. I cursed like a sailor. I said, man, I don't want y'all cursing. Don't do it. Don't do it around me. I, le- I probably shouldn't have <clears throat> fought this fight. It was a bad fight to fight with high schoolers. But I put the flag down. I said, do not curse or else. And these chokers tested me. <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to see what else. And I remember I was riding back from a training session. I had one of the guys I used to train, and uh, he was in the backseat of my car. He was mad about something, you know. He was 15 years old. He was mad about something. And Dakota's in the passenger seat up front. I keep looking in the rearview mirror, and I see him, you know, I see him getting angry and angry, talking about something. I'm like, man, this dude's about to cuss. (laughs) I could feel it. You know how something's about to happen, and you feel it in your bones? I was like, this dude's about to cuss. I was like, like, Daniel, you better be ready to prove yourself, you know. (laughs) I was like, I cannot back down. And I kept looking, and I, was, and I was like thinking in my head. I was trying to give him a serious face to let him know I wasn't playing. But in my mind, I was like, please don't cuss. Please don't cuss. Please don't cuss. Like, I don't want to have to be that guy right now. 
And he, in the back seat of my car, with no regrets, lets out the loudest cuss word I've ever heard. So much that, like, the music cut off. <laughs> and Dakota's looking at me. Dakota's looking at me like, what you going to do, coach? What you going to do? You said, or else. What is that? Or else. You know? I was like, dang it. You know? And I look back into my slam, my brace in the car. You know? Turn the car around. All of a sudden, their faces get wide. And I head to the Bartlett High School parking lot, which is a huge hill. Huge hill. And I pull up to the hill, and, and, you know, I'm coaching. I have parents' permission, of course. Amen. And uh, I pull up to the hill, and I tell him, I say, get out. He's like, oh, snap, what? And I was like, get out. I was like, we're going to run some ladders up and down this hill. <laughs> oh, yeah, young coach ain't playing games. Amen. We need to do some, we need to do some ladders in here. Amen. <laughs> Just kidding. We will not do that. <laughs> it was the first time people in the room were like, man, this dude is crazy. <laughs> I'm not coming back to this. And I make him do ladders. He gets back in the car. He's tired. He's winded. I dropped Dakota off. Me and him are riding back. And he asked me one of the most sincere, genuine questions I've ever been asked. I want you to understand, this was not an angry question, right? This was not a sarcastic question. This is one of the most realest questions I've ever heard in my life. He looks at me. He says, Coach, can I ask you something? I'm like, you better not cuss. (laughs) It's like, sure. And he's like, I I really do just want to know, why do you... Tell us not to curse when you could care less about you cursing. Almost break the car again, you know. <laughs> He's like, no, coach, for real. You tell us not to curse, but you don't care at all about you cursing. And I didn't have an answer because I realized I was a hypocrite. I realized I was trying to hold a standard for somebody else that I didn't have for me. And I want to tell you something. I've never forgotten this story, and here's why. You talk about being broken over sin. Hear me right now. Don't ever go weeping over other people's sin if you're not willing to weep over your own sin. That's good. See, God is trying to break your heart over your sin before he breaks your heart over somebody else's sin. And from that, when he breaks your heart over your sin, You'll repent, you'll begin to walk with the Lord, and then all of a sudden you will care about the other people and how they're walking with the Lord. It's amazing. So the quickest way to see revival, and I know we all want it. We've been praying every single night at this campus for revival. Hear me. The quickest way, the realest way, the rawest way to see God bring revival into the city of Memphis is to allow God to bring a revival in your own heart. Right here. I got to keep going. Jeez, I'm losing my time. Do you care? Do you care? And I love one other thing I want to point out to you. In his prayer, look with me at verse 5. It says, in his prayer, I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great, excuse me, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, With those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer. Going down, he says in verse 6, bottom of verse 6, I confess the sins we have committed against you, both I and my father's family's sin. Isn't it amazing that Nehemiah makes it personal? That Nehemiah does not just repent for the sins of Israel, but he's repenting over our sins, that we have sinned. It's personal to me, Nehemiah. But number two, are you willing to pray? 
So not only the first thing that we see from Nehemiah is we need to wake up and we need to care. Number one, I want you to care over your own walk with Christ, over your own sin, repenting of that, realizing that sin is never going to fill you up. It's never going to make you happy. No matter how much physical, fleshly pleasures you get, it's never going to fill you up. It's never going to be enough. You'll always be chasing that next high. Is that really how you want to live? Let me ask you something. Do you really want to live your entire life after college continuing to chase the next high of sin? Because it will never satisfy you. Or you can have Jesus Christ and be satisfied for eternity. Isn't that amazing? So not only, number one, are you willing to care, but number two, are you willing to pray? Now, I love this, and we need to learn from this. What I love most about Nehemiah's prayer is how he starts the prayer. Did you notice in verse 5? He says, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Then he says, let your ears be open and your, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. What I love here is that Nehemiah has a problem. Let's be real tonight. Let's not sugarcoat it. You got problems too. I got problems. Every single one of us in here has problems. We have families that are going through stuff. We have classes starting up. We have people who cause drama in our lives. We have friends who betray us. We have people that we struggle to trust. All of us have problems, and Nehemiah has a problem. But I want you to point, I want to point something out to you. And I know that you have problems because I watch, as your pastor, I watch you stress and overthink and worry over all your problems week in and week out. I see it. I do it myself, and I see it in your life. I know you got problems. Nehemiah has a problem, but did you, know something, uh, did you notice something about his prayer? Did you notice that Nehemiah, in his prayer, chooses, watch this, to magnify God instead of magnifying his problem? That he starts his prayer, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God. I want you to understand something. Nehemiah begins his prayer acknowledging how big God is, not how big his problem is. See, for a lot of us, the reason why we don't walk in in victory and freedom is because we are magnifying how big our problems are when really we need to be magnifying how big our God is. Because let me tell you something. When you realize how big God is in comparison to your problems, you'll realize how small your problems are to God. And how he holds on to them with with his righteous right hand, even when it's hard. Because I've been there. I've had family get sick. I've had hardships. I've had trials. I've had times in my life where the problems seemed colossal. They seemed huge. And they were to me. I'm not saying your problems aren't huge. But when you acknowledge in your prayers how big God is, he reminds you how small your problems are in the righteous right hand of a God who has created the heavens and the earth. Isn't that amazing? So hear me, if you want to walk in freedom, stop magnifying your problems to everybody and start magnifying your God to everybody and watch your problems work themselves out because God is at work. I see it all the time. And in fact, Ephesians 1 verse 18 talks about this. Paul says to the Ephesians in his letter, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Let's leave this up there for a minute. What Paul is praying for them is that literally their eyes of their heart, that Quite literally, their heart would be opened up to see how great the hope is that they have. There is nothing more sad than a believer who's walking around and doesn't smile because they don't realize how good the hope is they have in Jesus. There's nothing more attractive to the world when a believer walks around knowing the hope they have in Jesus. So you don't have to put together a perfect gospel presentation with a PowerPoint and, and little prizes and snack candy to give away. What you need to do is live your life full of the Holy Spirit of God, loving Jesus, sharing who he is to everybody around you, using scripture, and people around you will come to know Jesus Christ. They will. 
If you live like Jesus and you talk about Jesus and you talk about his word, people around you will start to get saved. You'll start to see them get baptized in this trough, at your trough, at your church's trough. They probably got something nicer than that. Like, you will see people give their lives to Jesus when we live like Jesus and we talk about Jesus and we verbally open our mouths and share about Jesus. Because I know you love talking. I've ridden in the car with PJ many times. I know PJ loved talking. PJ loved talking about anything and everything. He's got these new glasses, so he's around a lot more now. Mr. Big Man got some Ray-Bans on. Looks good. I know you love talking. What would happen if you opened your mouth and talked about Jesus to the lost people around you? What would really happen? Worst case scenario, they kill you, right? <laughs> you like that? Let's set the worst case scenario. Let's put it out there. Worst case scenario, they kill you. Is it an honor to die for the name of Jesus? Man, now listen, that's hard to say in our culture today because we're not dying over Jesus. Isn't that hard to say? Yet when you look at Acts, you see believers dying for their faith. Isn't it crazy how we, and me included, laugh over it? But that's what people are doing in Afghanistan. They're dying for their faith. For you who don't believe in Jesus, I'm telling you, God brought you here for tonight for a reason and it's because this is all real, and he wants to know you in a real way. He wants you to give your life to him. But for believers in the room, ain't it crazy how we all laugh about dying for our faith? But if you open your mouth and talk about Jesus with the lost people around you, the worst thing they could do is kill you. And if they kill you, you died an honorable death for the name of Jesus, and then you get to go be with them too? That's worst case scenario. Let's say they come and they go to your closet and they burn all your clothes, right? I don't know if that's the next worst case scenario. I'm just going off the top here. Is life not more than clothes? <laughs> I mean, when you really get down to it, when you really get down to it, we fear rejection and persecution so much, but the worst things they could do to you in reality in Memphis, Tennessee is laugh at you and say, hey man, stay away from me than that. And if we're not willing to endure that for the name of Jesus, we have to ask if we really know Jesus. I'm sorry, it's real. If we love Jesus, why do we not open our mouths and talk about who he is? And talk about the hope that we have. But not only that, I love James 5.13. It says, watch this, Alice, you're going to love this. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Don't you love that? And then it says, is, is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. So let's leave this for a moment. Basically, when it comes to are you willing to pray, there's two things. You should either at all times be praying or praising. <laughs> Did you notice that? That, hey, if you're suffering, Pray. If you're in a good season where everything's going well and God is blessing you and you're seeing things happen that are cool, you should be praising. See, what we do is we pray when we suffer, but we don't praise when God moves. But he says, if you're suffering, pray, take it to God and let the peace that surpasses all human understanding guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And when things are going good, he says, praise so that you will remind yourself who is the one that causes things to be good. God himself. I love those two verses. I'll, I'll stay on it more, but I got to keep moving. Next week's part two. Come back for that. I'm telling you, I'm going to pick up with more of this prayer. But I want to tell you about one of the worst feelings in the world. When you talk about prayer, Nehemiah prays for days. He fasts for days. I want to tell you about one of the worst feelings in the world. Have you ever hosted an event, invited people, and nobody came? Somebody was like, yep. <laughs> like, that was today. I'm sorry. <laughs> was that earlier? <laughs> was that like at Taco Bell? <laughs> I don't know who it was, but I'm going to be honest with you. When I was in high school and college, I didn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> and uh, 
my mom in high school would ask me if I wanted to do birthday parties. This is the saddest thing you'll ever heard, but it's real. I mean, it's real. If she would ask me if I want to do birthday parties, I'd say, Mom, no. And to be real with you, the reason I would tell my mom no is because I was afraid nobody would come, up, would come and show up. I didn't have a lot of friends. I just didn't have a lot of people in my life that were friends. I had one, and he was an atheist when I was in ninth grade, tenth grade. And he was the nicest person to me, an atheist. So if you're in the room and you don't believe Jesus, I want you to know something. An atheist had a big impact on my life. Now, he doesn't have the spirit of God in him, but he had a big impact on my life. And so if you're not a believer, if you're an atheist in here, or you're agnostic, or you believe something different from me, I want you to hear me say, I love you. But a whole lot more important than that, God loves you. God loves you. If you're here tonight and you don't believe this, God still loves you. He loves you so much. And he wants to know you. That's what's crazy. I tell my mom I didn't want to do birthday parties. I was scared nobody would come. We all know that gut-wrenching feeling. One of my favorite moments in history is Jeremiah Lanfear. Have you ever heard that name before? Jeremiah Lanfear? Does anybody know that name? It was a long time ago. He's not at University of Memphis. This was 1857. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> He's dead. <right? laughs> I mean, not in a bad way. I'm just saying, like, you wouldn't know him personally. Some of you are, like, you know, looking around. <laughs> like, you mean, like, PJ, like, somebody like Paul around here, <laughs> like, Jeremiah Lanfear. <laughs> Jeremiah Lanfear, he hosted an event. Hear me out on this, Caleb. He hosted an event in 1857, and it was an event in New York City. Anybody been to New York before? A few people in here? He hosted an event in New York City, and America was not in a good place at this time. And I, I, wrote, I wrote this down because I really didn't want to mess this up tonight. Um, 1857, America was not in a good place. We're not in a good place now. Um, 1857 was the same year that the Supreme Court ruled that African-American slaves and their descendants could not be U.S. citizens. That's terrible. That's awful. It was a bad year. It says, at this time, the church in America was divided, and God's people were not on the same page when it came to social and political issues. Boy, doesn't that sound like today, too? Because you look at everything in our, in our world, and we're divided on literally everything. 1857 was a hard time in America, a hard time. There was racism. There was division. There was all kind of things. And banks in Chicago, Philly, and New York failed and crippled the financial system. People lost money. People lost money. And when families start losing money, families start tearing apart. I don't know if you realize that or not, but most divorces are over finances. Do you realize that? And so banks started to fail and people started to lose money. In the midst of this brokenness in our nation, okay, I'm going to look at this a lot because I don't want to mess it up. Jeremiah was given an idea from the Lord. I don't know how closely you walk with the Lord. I've experienced over the last five years, but when you're reading scripture every day and you're praying, God will impress things on your heart. And most times it's to pray and tell people about Jesus. <laughs> if you're wondering what God wants you to do with your life, pray and tell people about Jesus, and that's a fantastic start. That's not all of it, but that's a fantastic start. Then you need a disciple and to teach him how to live the Christian life. But he puts on Jeremiah Lanfear's heart an idea. God impressed on his heart that what New York and our nation needed most was prayer. The same way Nehemiah fasts and prays, Jeremiah Lanfear hears from God that they need to pray. And so I love this. What he does is he decided to host a one-hour prayer meeting, and he went out, just like we did today at Campus Ministry, and invited as many businessmen as he could. I'm talking about everybody. Flyers, word of mouth, inviting businessmen to come out. Jeremiah was all excited about it. We just did this at U of M. Y'all know what it's like. He, he invited all these people out. And he spreads the word, he grinds, he, he comes to the place where he's doing the prayer meeting. And he sits down, you know, sits down in the room, and he's invited everybody he knows. 
And 30 minutes pass by, and not a single person has shown up. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Where God impresses on your heart to do something, and nobody shows up? And Jeremiah's like, man, what in the world? Why? What is the point of this? What am I doing here on my lunch break? I could be doing so many other things. And then after 30 minutes, he hears, door opens, six men walk in. First day, and they start praying. Next week, he shows back up, has no idea what's going to happen. 20 men show up to pray. All of a sudden, that gut-wrenching feeling when nobody shows up, all of a sudden, you start being a little more encouraged. People start showing up. Next week, Knock on the door, 30, 40 people start coming and praying every single day at his lunch break. And here's what's crazy, because here's what started to happen from here. They're praying every single day. It's an hour. They're praying every week at lunch. It's an hour-long prayer meeting. The New York newspapers begin to write about what's happening. This is incredible. This is prayer. Remember this. The New York newspapers begin to write about the prayer meetings that are happening. And going into the next year, Jeremiah, watch this, saw 10,000 people praying daily. But it doesn't stop there. What's amazing is, in order to give as many people as they could a chance to pray, they had a bell that would ring every five minutes to keep people so that different people could pray. I mean, they had people dying to pray. Boop, boop, boop. They had people falling on the ground wanting to pray for their country. All of a sudden, it spreads from New York. It doesn't just stay in New York because when God does something in one city, he's really sending it to another city. All of a sudden, it goes from New York, and prayer groups pop up in Boston, Philly, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. Chicago at that time saw its Metropolitan Theater filled with 2,000 people praying daily. And then the revival begins to spread to the college campuses in America. I can't believe most of you have never heard this. In fact, the University of California, Berkeley, Dartmouth, Wake Forest, saw thousands giving their lives to Jesus. Thousands. Can you imagine... Just think about it. Thousands getting saved at your university. Can you imagine? It doesn't stop there. I love it. The effects of this movement were so crazy. Gambling casinos were opening their doors for daily prayer meetings. <laughs> what? <laughs> I read it. I was like, man, I guess I can put it in there, but it doesn't make sense. And then one of our leaders Zach Wilson, who I love to death, is from Ireland. In fact, he just came back from Ireland after being there. Where are you, Zach? Are you around here? There he is right there. Um, he spent all summer back in Ireland. What was crazy about this, watch this. Let me have your eyes. This movement that started in New York went to Ireland. Hear me out for a minute. In Ireland, there was a Presbyterian school or something like that. You can go and read it yourself. They spent two sessions, okay? Delaney, they spent two sessions discussing the revival that was happening across the Atlantic Ocean in New York. And because they were studying it and going over what God was doing, they saw 100,000 people get saved in Ireland. So, Zach, when you go back to Ireland, just remember you're taking the power of the gospel with you, brother. Amen? <laughs> Ain't that crazy? 100,000 people, they start studying what God's doing and they get saved. <laughs> they're like, man, okay, this is what they're doing. This is what's happening. Oh, I need this. <laughs> And that's how God moves. And I love what I wrote down is it shows, number one, that God is not intimidated by the size of our cities. It shows that God was not intimidated by the mockers in Jerusalem. God was not intimidated that the walls were breaking down. Most of all, most of all Kobe Drake, God is not intimidated by the sinful culture around us. God is not intimidated by what we see on Instagram and TikTok. God is not intimidated by the lostness in your life or the sin in your life. God is not intimidated by our cities. 
God can move and save anybody. And I believe he's coming to the city of Memphis this fall. I believe he is going to move in this city. Because what started with one man on his lunch break ended up spreading to the world. By the end of it, Jeremiah saw half a million people attend the prayer meetings. Can I ask you a question? Why not Memphis? Why not you? Give me one reason. Why not? I don't speak eloquently, Daniel. I'm not a great leader. I'm studying physical education, which for those in the room, that was my major. And people laughed at it. Said, you ain't gonna be nothing with that. Give me one reason why God cannot send a revival to the city and one good reason why he can't send a revival to you and through you right now. Give me one good reason why not you, why not now. If God can reach the world with somebody's lunch break, what could he do with your lunch break? If God took Jeremiah's land fear prayers and sent them to Ireland, where could he send your prayers? I'm asking do you believe God is big enough to use you? Do you believe? If so, then when you step back out on that campus, when you go back out into the world, you are a missionary. Most people are a college student who just happen to be a believer on the side. No, 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 no. You are a believer who just happens to be a college student on the side. Which one do you want to last? You want to be a college student your whole life? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Some of us are so proud to say, oh, I'm a mechanical engineering major. You know? And like, but, but are you a believer? Oh, eh, kind of. Which one do you want to last? God will use you. And tonight, some of you are where I was. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ so that he can begin to use you out there because he wants to so badly. Are you willing to pray? Nehemiah mourns, Nehemiah fasts, Nehemiah prays. God is not intimidated by the brokenness in Jerusalem, and the city is going to be restored as we study over the next few weeks. But most of all, why not Memphis? Because when you look at this city, what's the difference between it and Jerusalem? This city's broken. There are people around you who are broken. This culture that we live in today, is it not sinful? Are we not lost as a culture? We are living in a generation that devotes six to 10 hours a day of screen time. And man, I sound old saying that, I'm 27, but we're spending six to 10 hours on our phones. We live in a lost culture. You have been sent by God to change culture, not be changed by the culture. God could do anything with your prayers. And then number three, are you willing to go? My final thing is, are you willing to go? It's great to pray. I love prayer, and we've been praying every night at University of Memphis. But God is calling us to go. So three things. Are you willing to care? Are you willing to pray? And are you willing to go? In verse 11, if you're willing to look at me, and then this is our last thing, verse 11, Nehemiah prays something very specifically. Don't miss this. He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Then he says this. This is so huge. Bree, do not miss this. Give your servant success today. 
and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Do you know who Nehemiah is praying about right here? When it says this man, a lot of us read it and we miss it. Nehemiah is praying for King Artaxerxes because that king is a pagan king. In other words, the king he's working for does not know God. And when Nehemiah goes to stand before him in chapter 2, what we're going to look at next week, when Nehemiah goes to stand in front of this king who does not believe God and ask this king if he can go rebuild Jerusalem in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the true God, Nehemiah could be obliterated in this moment. He is standing up for everything. Are you willing to go if it means you might face persecution for the name of Jesus Christ? The first time I walked on University of Memphis campus to share the gospel, my hands were shaking. Anybody handshake before? Man, my hands shake bad. And uh, I went to the campus, and man, to be honest with you, I, I gave my life to Jesus, and I got saved, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was 21 years old, and I didn't know much about the Bible. I didn't feel like I knew anything about it. All I knew was Daniel in the lion's den because that was my name. And I clung to it, man. Anytime everybody asked me, you reading in the Bible? I was like, oh, yeah, Daniel in the lion's den. I thought that was the book, Daniel in the lion's den. <laughs> I didn't know anything. And I, at that park, I had a radical conversion. I met Jesus Christ. I, in tears, I gave my life to him. And I got up off that ground. And I kid you guys not, there was a peace, but there was also a burden on me to go. I can't describe it. I had a conviction to go and tell others about Jesus. It was very simple to me. It wasn't religious. Jesus had just saved me, and what he has told me to do now is go tell other people about him. So I walked on University of Memphis campus. This was five years ago. I walked into the UC. My hands are shaking. But all I know is God has told me to come and share the gospel with somebody at this campus. And I walk in, and I'm like, all right, God, I'll do it. And I'm like hoping that nobody's going to be sitting alone. You know, maybe it's empty. Maybe everybody's full of the table and stuff. And, and I walk in, and I see this college student sitting alone. I'm like, dang, Lord, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> you know, when, when, when you see someone that God wants you to tell Jesus about, you know, we try to run from it. We make excuses. I'm too busy. I got this going on. I'm tired. They'll reject me. We make excuses, but we know. And I walked over to this man. My hands are shaking. I'm scared to put my hand out for a handshake. I walk over to this college student, and I say, hey, man. You know, voice cracked a little bit. <laughs> hey, man. I was like, how you doing? He said, man, I'm doing pretty good. I've never done this in my life before. I've never told anybody about Jesus before. I walk up to him. I said, how you doing? He's like, I'm doing pretty good. I said, man, I was trying to remember my name for a minute. I'm Daniel, you know. He's like, hey, I remember his name. His name was Hayden. He said, hey, man, I'm Hayden. And I said, man, do you mind if I sit down with you? You know, I had my backpack on. I was a you know, a junior in college. I said, do you mind if I sit down with you? He's like, sure. And so I sat down with him right there in the university center. I mean, we were just there today. I sat down with him at his table, and we talked about the NBA. We talked about basketball. We talked about a few things. And uh, in this moment, I felt the heavy burden to tell this man about the gospel. But I was so afraid. I was so afraid because I don't want to be rejected. Do you? I didn't feel adequate enough. I felt like I was a hypocrite. How can I go tell people about Jesus when I struggle with sin myself? How can I be used by God? How? But I knew that Jesus Christ is sinless and saved me. It wasn't religious to me. It was simple. Jesus is sinless. Jesus has saved me. Jesus did the work on the cross. Because of him, I'm worthy, and I'm called to share the gospel. And some of you, that's what you need to hear tonight. You have been made worthy by the bloodshed of Jesus Christ on that cross, and he wants to use you. So I looked at the man and I asked him the question. I said, man, so 
I want to be upfront with you. I want to be honest with you. I said, I'm going to shoot it straight with you, Hayden. A, a couple of weeks ago, I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know that he has told me to go and tell other people about him. Don't you love that? Simplest thing you'll ever hear. I was like, man, so do you have a faith, or, or do you believe in anything, man, when it comes to eternity? And he looked at me in this moment. I was like, please say you're a believer. Please say you're a believer, you know? I was like, oh, this is great, God. I'm out. I did it, you know? Well, Jesus is good. I'll see you later. Okay, you know? He says, no, I'm not. And again, I'm like, dang it. And in this moment, I'll never forget, my hand stopped shaking. You ever been there? My hand stopped shaking. And the nervousness went away, and I was looking at him eyeball to eyeball, and I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to tell him about Jesus. And this is what I asked. I said, man, do you believe that creation demands a creator? The simplest question. I said, let me ask you, do you, do you believe that because we have a creation all around us that there must be a creator to it? And he had never heard that question before. He had never been asked that. He said, man, I guess so. I said, listen, if you found a watch in a field and you stumbled across it, do you think that watch would fall from the sky or did somebody design that watch? This is exa- I'm telling you word for word what I said to him. He said, I believe somebody would make that watch. So I said, Hayden, I want you to know something. More than a watch, far more than a watch, there is a creation and there is a design to our world. I said, we were sitting right by the windows. I said, look outside, man. Look at the trees. The trees are beautiful. The sky is beautiful. I said, our world has a design to it. It's exactly what I told him, Kobe. I said, this world has a design to it. But I said, Hayden, more than that, you and I have a design to us. I said, man, do you know how smart you are? I said, I don't even know you, brother. But do you know what your mind is capable of? Your personality? I said, our bodies, the way that we function, like there's a design to you and me and how we have been made. And he's just staring at me eyeball to eyeball. There's no distractions going on. He's locked in with me. I said, man, there's a design to our lives. And I said, Hayden, I believe that means there's a creator. I believe that means there's a designer. And he's locked in with me. And I tell him, man, I believe that you can know who that creator is. I said, Hayden, you can know who created you. You can know right now. I told him Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, that when God created you, he made you in his image. And college students, I want you to hear that tonight. You were not made in a factory. Some of you are walking around feeling so unloved, and it's because you don't know the one who has created you. You think you're here by chance. You think that you were made in some factory. No, no, no. You were created and designed by a loving God, you. And that's why I told Hayden, I said, you've been designed and you've been created by a loving God. I said, man, you can know who that is because God didn't just create you. He came for you. He came for you. I said, Hayden, look around at our world. Do you see sin? Do you see brokenness? He said, yeah. I said, man, you don't have to be a believer to know that this world is broken. I said, everywhere around us is sin. I said, we have chosen to sin and we have broken God's design. It's because of our sin. It's because of our pride and our arrogance and wanting to do it our way that we've gone against God's law. Sin is breaking God's law. And there's consequences to that. But I remember looking at him. I said, Hayden, You can never climb your way to heaven. I said, Hayden, you will never be good enough on your own. I said, that's why God came down 2,000 years ago as a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi named Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully man, fully God. And I said, Hayden, he walked this earth. And for 2,000 years, nobody's been able to disprove it. And college students, I want you to hear tonight, 
the most real thing that you're going to hear out of all your chemistry, out of all your nursing, out of all your uh, engineering, all these classes you're going to take. Hear this. The most real thing is that Jesus Christ was fully God, came down to this earth. He loved people. He healed people. He cared for people, uh, people of different races, people of different backgrounds, people who had leprosy that nobody would touch. Jesus touched them. And he didn't have to touch them to heal them. He touched them to show that he would touch those nobody else would. That he would love those that nobody else would. And because of that, the world hated him. Because he went against the religious leaders and their tradition and their hypocrisy, because he went against people living in sin, they hated him. And your Savior, the one who knows you, your creator, who came down to this earth for you, he was beaten, he was tortured. They used the whip of course on his back that ripped the skin off of his back every single time it hit his back. And then on that back, they made him carry his cross. And they laid out his hands, and they put his feet together. They drove nails in, and they hung him up. They crucified him. At 9 a.m., a horn would have sounded in Jerusalem. And then at 3 p.m., he lifted up his spirit. And I want you to know something. I was looking at Hayden. And all the nervousness had gone away because once you actually start to share the gospel, it goes away so quick. And I looked at him and I said, man, have you ever heard this before? He was like, man, not really. And I said, I said, Hayden, do you think there's any chance that God could be trying to get to you? And it was so wild because he looked at me at this moment. He said, actually, it's crazy because Daniel, last week, a couple days ago, I was struggling to figure out why am I here. He said, I was asking my mom the other day who I still live with, what is my purpose? And it was at this moment that I realized that as God was working on me to go share the gospel, he's also working on the people you're going to share the gospel with. So for those of you who do want to see the 7% reach for Christ, just know that as God is working in you, he's also working in the ones you're going to share with. And in this moment, I looked at Hayden. I said, the greatest news is that Jesus did not just die on that cross. Many good men and women have died for good causes, Jill. He didn't just die. He rose from the grave bodily 2,000 years. Nobody can disprove it. He rose from the grave conquering death, bringing freedom to all people. In one crucifixion, he freed billions from the chains of slavery to sin. Billions. rose from the grave, ascended to heaven. And at this moment, I was about to ask Hayden. I was like, I'm going to ask him if he wants to give his life to Jesus right now. His phone rang. He picks up his phone off the table. I'm like, no. You know, I've just shared this whole gospel. We're going to walk through all this. He's going to take this call and walk off on me. And I'll never forget. He declines the call, sets the phone face down on the table, looks back at me and says, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ right now. To be honest with you, I started to get nervous again. <laughs> I started to shake again. And right there in the university center, one of my first times sharing the gospel, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And at this moment, I realized God is always moving. And I want to tell you that for the believers in the room, you can go do it. 
You can go lead people to Christ if you have the power of the Lord living inside of you. But for many of you in the room, you are just like Hayden. You are just like me when I was 21. You don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's be real. Let's be honest. You got religion. You might have heard the story, but you ain't never given your life to Jesus Christ in a real relationship way. Is there any reason you should not give your life to Jesus Christ right now? Because God loves you. You may not love God, but God loves you. You may not want him, but he wants you. He wants you so much that Jesus died and rose again from you. And you can know your creator. You can know who you are. Because once you know who he is, he establishes who you are. And you can live a life of joy and of purpose. And I believe that many of you were brought here tonight to hear this so that you could give your life to Jesus Christ.